buckle up. It's it's geography with Sophia. Hello and welcome to Pinot and Policy Arbiters podcast, where we usually discuss policy while drowning our sorrows over libations. Uh, but today is a little different. I am Sophia Freuden, today's host of Pino and Policy, as well as Arbiture's Editor-in-Chief. I am joined by Alan Schwartz, a, con- a contributor at Arbiture. The reason why today is a little different is that it's 8 a.m. in uh, Israel right now, where Ellen is, and it is currently 10 p.m. where I am. So I think libations are off the table given <laughs> the time of the day. Today's topic, if you haven't already guessed it, is the Middle East and specifically the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Ellen, why don't we start by having you introduce yourself and tell us what you do outside of Arbiture and why you're in Israel. My name is Ellen Schwartz. I am currently interning at the Arabat Institute for Environmental Studies, which is located in Katora, Israel, uh, in the Arabat Desert in Israel, which is about 40 minutes north of Ilat. So at the very extreme south of the country. There I work on a project called Track 2. It's an environmental forum that was started by the Institute in 2016 to create support from like the Track 2 level, so like civil society and the general public for uh, peace and for collaboration between neighbors and different demographics. Uh, so we work on environmental projects that are transboundary in nature that affect everybody that are of common concern and all the projects are planned and implemented by uh, teams that are joint Israeli-Jordanian, Israeli-Palestinian, Israeli-Jordanian-Palestinian international. Like they, they have to be transboundary. So some of those include like the charcoal industry in the West Bank, which is polluting uh, both sides of the green line. And we have a project that is going to help uh, Palestinian farmers uh, continue to produce charcoal while capturing the air pollution so it's not such a public health hazard and pollution. We have a bunch of water and energy projects in Gaza right now that are seeking funding. Um, Can't go into too much detail about them just because it's uh, a little bit sensitive, but yeah, that's a lot of just solar, wastewater, that kind of stuff. Uh, We have a project to build a regional climate change adaptation center where um, researchers from around the region can get together and actually produce you know, kind of data uh, and close the data gap as far as climate change research and and adaptation regionally. Like Israelis have, you know, robust amounts of data. Uh, The same can't really be said for Palestinians and and Jordanians, I think, are somewhere in the middle. So so a way to actually create a regional center that can be consulted both by governments and also intergovernmental organizations. So that's like an example of the things we do. The reason it's called Track 2 is because it's differentiated from track one, uh, which is like the governmental level. It's a term used in diplomacy. Uh, so this is track two. And the, the idea is that track one diplomacy is virtually non-existent right now. Uh, so we have to turn to track two, empowering people to take it into their own hands, basically, and build support from the ground up. Uh, so that's what I do here. The Arabat Institute is a transboundary institute. As I said, uh, our students like the, the statistics hover around one third Israeli uh, Jewish, one third Arab, so uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinians coming from the West Bank, Jordanians, and uh, we even have a student from Morocco, one-third international. So students from Canada, the U.S., Kenya, France, and others, Germany. And we live together on the kibbutz, and we do a lot of 
you know, kind of community community building outside of that. And we um, talk about the conflict all the time. And it's also very present in the day to day. Tensions come up, um, conflicting national holidays come up. Uh, Passover comes up, Ramadan. Events in Gaza have happened multiple times since I've been here of um, pretty devastating airstrikes and in Gaza and just kind of dealing with that with a mixed community. Uh, so it's been, definitely been a learning experience. Uh, before I was at the Arava Institute, I did a service year in a program called Abojah. It's a Jewish uh, service program similar to AmeriCorps in the States. And before that, I uh, got my bachelor's at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, in international relations with a uh, concentration in the Middle East regionally. So after I leave the Arab Institute in June, I'll be working probably for a couple more years, and then I, I will apply for grad school, probably a Master of Arts in Law and Diplomacy with a concentration in environment and resource policy. And I also am a dual citizen. I'm a citizen of Israel, and my family lives here. My Half of my family lives here. Yeah. That's it. Okay. I think that answers the question, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> um, thank you for that. So before we get into sort of the weeds of, of what's been happening in recent days and weeks in the region, and sort of as like a segue between what you were just talking about with what you're doing with the Arava Institute, um, can you tell me like something happy or like something that you like really found like me yeah. in before we get into like the really like kind of sad, dark details of what we're about to discuss? Like with this track two work that you're doing, what is something that you've just really enjoyed? Oof, yeah, this is a hard question. Um, well, I'll give you an example. A couple of our projects are really pretty close to implementation. Like they're just waiting for approval. And I spent a, a couple days ago, I spent my day in Albira, which is uh, kind of a sister city to Ramallah in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were touring through with all the Israelis getting kind of, or touring all the sites that this trunk line for wastewater will be built through uh, that we're working on. So it's going from a wastewater treatment plant uh, in the Ramallah area to this area called Uja, which is where the majority of farming for Palestinians takes place uh, in the West Bank. And it's very, very dry. It lacks water. It gets unequal access to water. Uh, yeah, like compared to settlements around it. And we actually spent the day just touring and working with the Israelis to get, get approval for this trunk line, which will bring significantly more water into uh, the agriculture there. Uh, so that was really cool and very surreal. Don't usually spend our days talking to, um, you know, Israelis who are kind of have control over the West Bank or the projects that happen there, uh, part of the civil administration, um, primarily. Uh, if you know that organization, it's part of the Israeli government. They're responsible for approving any kind of major, you know, waterworks projects in, in the West Bank. Um, yeah. Okay. So that was cool. Uh, you know, day to day, there's lots of things that, you know, it's always a balance between, you know, kind of being on this little oasis where I have a lot of close friends who come from all over the region and I visited them and stuff like that to just, you know, getting reality checks and just realizing how in the minority we are. And it's really, I think it's particularly isolating for all of my friends who are based regionally um, and just, yeah, being able to support them has been, I think, the biggest joy that I've had this year. And, but I won't lie, like, the picture is pretty bleak overall okay good to know that i should curb my enthusiasm um <laughs> not that i was particularly enthusiastic about what what's going on in the middle east so 
to our listeners, uh, the reason why I asked Alan to join me today to talk about specifically the Israeli-Palestinian peace process is that several days ago, ending about over over like a week ago, I think it ended officially eight days ago, there is a recent surge in violence in the Gaza Strip, which if you're not familiar with the geography of Israel, it's on it's in the southwestern corner of Israel, sort of by Sinai and on the um, coast of the Mediterranean. And correct me if I'm getting any of this geography wrong, Ellen, I'm not looking at a map, I'm just reciting this based off of memory. So, you know, it's, it's a, a matter of buckle up, it's, it's geography with Sophia. Um, <laughs> But uh, so that's where the Gaza Strip is. That is where the violence has sort of sprung up. And it's not the first or last, I'm assuming, time that this will happen. This recent surge, and you know, part of the reason why I want to talk about it specifically is it's one of the worst surges that we've had since, um, or rather they have had, we, I don't know, the world has had in that region since 2014, when there was a seven-week war between Israel and specifically the Gaza Strip. Uh, in 2014, according to the UN Human Rights Council, about 2,251 people were killed in 2014. This most recent surge was way smaller than that. 22 Palestinians, I believe, a mix of civilians and people associated with the military, and then four Israeli citizens were also killed. So it's not nearly as bad as 2014, but it's still not great. Um, any, you know, any death is a tragedy. And this is just sort of like the lace, the most recent surge in a string of things that, that have been happening in the Israeli-Palestinian and specifically Israeli-Gazan relationship in recent years. Um, this is kind of an uncommon topic to talk about since, I honestly, since like the, the outbreak of the Syrian civil war. There's been a lot of things going on in the Middle East that have been capturing attention, I think, somewhat away from this issue, in part because it's just been these low-intensity conflicts, you know, that last for a couple of days or a couple hours and then fade out. Uh, we have Syria, we have Iran, we have Yemen, we have, you know, the United States doing whatever the United States is doing at any given point in time, just by kind of dragging our attention in various areas. Oh, Saudi, Saudi Arabia is another one. But I really wanted to talk about this issue in part because I feel like it could potentially break out to be something worse at any given point in time, you know, given conditions that are there. One. And two, just because we're ignoring it doesn't mean it's just going to magically disappear. So, Alan, why don't you tell me, like, when this started just, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, which also coincided with the beginning of Ramadan. Why don't you tell me, like, what, what it was like for you being there in the region and, like, when this violence has sprung up in, in the past, you know, what is it like when you're there? Because we see this footage on CNN or whatever, and it always looks terrible. There's always, like, a lot of, you know... <sighs> like rockets being launched and whatever else but like we don't really know what it's like for the people living there yeah well first of all being in the arava which is um gaza is south but the arava it, if you've seen israel it, it's almost it's close to diamond shape and uh the bottom part really um it's down way further south uh, so gaza's in the south but the arava is still like a, a few hours south from there mm -hmm. uh it is pretty um isolated from the large, like you feel very um, isolated from the rest of uh, the country here, feel very removed, uh, which is a blessing. And in some ways, I think a drawback, because it is hard to tell how people are feeling sometimes in parts that are, you know, having rockets or closer to the strip where you can, you know, see the airstrikes happening and stuff. Uh, but I do live, yeah, like I've had the pleasure of becoming close to, to people who are on all sides of this um, 
issue this year. Like I have friends in Gaza, from Gaza. I have is a lot. Yeah, a lot of Israeli friends, friends in the West Bank, uh, Jordan. Uh, so I do get to hear these uh, perspectives in real time. And I think overall, it's disappointing and frightening, but it's not surprising to anyone here uh, when this breaks out. There's sort of this expectation at this point, I think, that we're due for another war. I, I'm saying that in quotes, but you can't see them. Because there were wars um, kind of every two years for a while, and they always happen in the summer. Uh, so people are sort of like, you know, we haven't had that one in four years, and, and you know, it's going to happen. And we keep having these sorts of start and stop escalations where, you know, there, there's some back and forth between Hamas and uh, the IDF and then the Israel Defense Forces. And um, then there's a ceasefire and, you know, you're not sure if it's going to hold or not. Um, so people here, I think, overall on all sides, are, would not be surprised if it escalated further, but it, it doesn't make it less frightening. Like anytime Israel strikes the Gaza Strip, there's significant damage, you know, l- much larger fatalities. Uh, we also have the March for Return going on. So there's a lot going on uh, at and that's happening every Friday. There are protests at uh, the Gaza border, and it's been met with pretty uh, violent response. Uh, the Israelis say that there's a lot of insurgents who are trying to storm the border amidst peaceful protesters, um, you know, throwing burning tires, burning kites, uh, Molotovs, things like that. But there are reports of large um, kind of, yeah, pretty pretty violent responses. People, you know, large amounts of people being shot and uh, in places where they have to get amputated, um, large numbers of fatalities, uh, targeting journalists and medics, things like that, uh, who are, you know, clearly marked. So so that's going on amidst all of that. Like before the escalation, there were four people killed uh, in the March for a Turn that Friday. And then over the weekend, uh, which is Shabbat here, so people don't even necessarily know it started uh, until they log back on. But um, if they keep Shabbat, which is not everybody, but and then over that weekend, the that started and it was really fast. And yeah, like a lot of people, a lot of Israelis were worried that they would be drafted, you know, into the reserves. Uh, Israelis who have completed their army service are still in reserve for a number of years. Uh, so when there's anything like this, you know, they they wonder if when they'll be called. Uh, four Israelis died. It might that number may have gone up. Last time I checked, it was four, which is different. Usually the rockets that come from Gaza do not uh, kill anybody, both because they are um, not sophisticated weapons and also because um, Israel has something called Iron Dome, which intercepts uh, a large number of those missiles when they're coming towards civilian areas. But those do- that interception system does not work for areas close to the border. So so places like Starot and up the Kibbutzim around the Gaza Strip do get like rained on all the time, and they have about 15 seconds to... Um, hide uh, or get in the shelter. And if they don't, you know, it, it's, it is dangerous for them. And we had a similar incident. It, the other major flare up we had was in November. Uh, I don't know if you uh, remember that. It was a pretty big deal here uh, because we were having like a regional conference and a lot of people could not come uh, and participate because of the violence. Uh, we really thought also then that war might break out, like an all-out war, uh, mm-hmm. but it was another one of these start-and-stop kind of situations. You know, there was definitely some relief. But, I mean, I, you know, overall, I think there there's agreement from, like, large portions of, you know, Israeli society and, the, and Palestinian that it's just whatever we have now is extremely unsustainable. Gaza's going to be unlivable, according to the UN and other... Um, intergovernmental organizations by 2020. Uh, I, I would say I think it's pretty unlivable now also, but but 
you know, on a new level that on an unprecedented scale by 2020. Yeah. So in in my research preparing for this episode, that was one of the things that came up as sort of why, like why specifically did this violence break out this time? And one of the things that was mentioned was the humanitarian conditions there and the humanitarian crisis there. What do you know about, you know, when you say unlovable now versus unlivable in 2020 like what do you what do you what do you what is unlivable now and what is unlivable in 2020 yeah it's hard to say i don't really know like i mean to me it's pretty unlivable now i don't really see how it's going to become how much worse it can get really i mean you have four hours of electricity a day right now give or take sometimes up to six um you know if they're lucky up to eight but that's one of the things like, you know, the, the main power plant was bombed in, uh, I think, 2014 during the, um, the Israeli campaign in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also, yeah, like there's a large blockade that Israel, you know, they have a policy of kind of blockading a lot of goods, specifically goods that are dual use, uh, de- deemed like they could also be used for military purposes, which includes basically any kind of basic infrastructure material you can have, as well as a lot of things that don't seem to make any sense at all. But so, yeah, so rebuilding um, damaged infrastructure is very difficult. They lack adequate training for people who are supposed to maintain electrical systems. Uh, The payment systems uh, are completely screwed up and there's no kind of institutional capacity to get people to really pay their bills. And also people don't want to pay their bills when uh, they're getting four hours of electricity a day. Like I also wouldn't want to pay my bill. It makes complete Mm -hmm. sense. Uh, There's kind of weird management schemes between Hamas and the PA, the Palestinian Authority. Uh, The Palestinian Authority is also works in those kinds of things. Uh, So the electricity issue is is one of those things. It's really like disruptive, especially for women. Mm -hmm. Um, If you think about like traditionally women are, uh, especially, yeah, in Gaza are are responsible for a lot of the housekeeping. And, And if you don't have the electricity, you know, or if electricity is coming in the middle of the night, like they have to wake up in the middle of the night to do their uh, household chores, and then they have no control over if they can complete them. Uh, and that's very disruptive also to the social fabric. So so you have all sorts of ways that that affects it. The water situation is abysmal. I, I think the statistic is like 10% of the water is potable uh, that they have access to. The aquifer that they pull from is just extremely polluted. Uh, there's, how much is it? It's a I forget what the exact statistic, but there's millions of cubic liters of water, uh, of polluted water flowing into the Mediterranean uh, every day. The, there's large fishing restrictions. Uh, fishermen are supposed to have, I think, is it 20 kilometers of uh, fishing area off the coast. Uh, they have about six to nine right now, which is enforced by the Israeli Navy. Um, it's one of the most densely populated places in the world. I think it might be the most densely populated. And... It's also the population is rapidly growing. Uh, the unemployment rate is about 40%. It's larger for young people. Uh, and the population is extremely young. Uh, overall, poverty rates are about 60%. 80% or more people there rely on um, a cash transfer or food or some kind of reliance or aid. And yeah, and there's also no freedom of movement. You know, it's pretty impossible for people to conduct regular business, uh, to freely travel across either the Egyptian or the Israeli border. There's rare, uh, rare exceptions that are granted to that, especially for like medical emergencies. But yeah, for the most part, people are really stuck there. Uh, and you've probably heard the term like open air prison. And I, I would say it's pretty accurate, like to what the conditions there are. 
Well, uh, I think we have reached the bleak part of the episode officially. Um, that's a lot to deal with. I mean, I think that's that's a lot to deal with. And it's not necessarily news to me per se. Like some of the, obviously the specifics of what you're talking about is news. But like people know in general, I think that things aren't good there, right? Whether they know to the extent of how not good they are, especially in recent months and recent years is another matter. And as I mentioned earlier, with this issue just kind of getting pushed aside because there are other things in the Middle East that are getting, you know, that are more attention grabbing, it sort of just begs the question of like, all right, when 2021, you know, when 2020 rolls around and there is this truly like unlivable crisis, how does that affect A, the peace process, you know, in the Middle East? And also like, how does that affect just Israel on sort of a migration or like demographical crisis, you know, like, when I hear of, of these kinds of conditions, all I can think of is like people like desperate to escape, you know, people desperate to like have water or food or anything. Cause at least they have a little bit now, but like that little bit won't be there soon. So yeah. like, so I'm not sure. I don't know. Do, do your peers like in Israel ever talk about, you know, what, what will happen if, if that happens? I think, we, yeah, I mean, they don't really, uh, it's actually something that, a lot of like well-respected Israeli generals, especially if they have experience in the Gaza Strip, have said if conditions don't improve. It's going to be like the biggest threat to Israel that you know that you can imagine. I would say, you know, I think I have more of a vested interest in improving people's lives, and I don't know how much I like that. The primary incentive is not protecting Israeli security for me, uh, yeah. but it is a concern for the average Israeli. Probably the biggest concern if you're talking security and how issues are framed here, like, it's all about security. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that there's a threat of, like, mass migration across the border. I mean, Israel has uh, movement in the Strip pretty on lock. Um, but I don't really know. I think I think it, the pers- as far as demographic threat, Drago, it is a term that is used a lot um, by Israeli pundits. I think it's kind of, if we unpack it a little bit, it's based in some sort of, like, I th- I'm worried of anything where it's pretty hyper-focused on manipulating population statistics um, ethnically uh, mm-hmm. to maintain a balance just because it's kind of like racist. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not saying that that's what you meant, but I, I think that it's not, it's a very reactionary thing yeah. um, that is rooted in a, a desire for survival, but it's, it, I find it very troubling here and it, there's just no way to maintain it without uh, ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't think anyone really knows. Um, you know, it feels like a meteor crashing into Earth, and we're just kind of waiting for the inevitable to happen. I think there are a lot of situations around the world where it feels like that. And climate change. Just, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was thinking. Like we know, we know where it's headed. Like it's not headed anywhere good. It's a collective action problem. Like who's who bears the responsibility? People, you know, people are very caught up in Hamas partially for good reason, you know, people just say nothing can change until Hamas is not in power anymore, only the Gazans can uh, change that, or, you know, the Israelis, I guess, could overthrow them, but I think in some ways they're almost like the devil we know. Um, as some of my Gazan friends have said, there are way more, there are way bigger threats in Gaza than Hamas, mm-hmm. um, Islamic Jihad, other groups uh, that could fill a vacuum if you're not careful. Um yeah, like, so there's a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot of projects to try to bring in uh, improvement of the humanitarian conditions. And I think that's a key component to anything. But yeah, pe- people have also talked like a lot of Israeli 
military people have talked about this idea of like a Marshall plan for Gaza, basically like you need to inject like just a, a massive amount of funds and relief. Um, but yeah, also like we know that that can't be maintained unless you're also like configuring institutions for success. Yeah. Uh, so how you do that, I don't know how you do that. And also like give the people agency and like, you know, respond to the need that they have. I don't know either, especially when a lot of this is also rooted in like, that they can't control their lives. They can't control their movement, all these things. Like that is, I think, a key component of, you know, building anything sustainable. Yeah, no, that's like one thing when I, I just, when I've done this before myself, even in certain circumstances, because everyone loves to use the Marshall plan as sort of like, oh, remember that one time we did that one thing and it was super cool. Yeah. And uh, like what I think when when people use that like oh we should have a Marshall Plan for any given area of the world or like maybe internally in the United States whatever else like I think one thing that they really forget is that Europe as a continent mm -hmm. and then within each country had really sustainable institutions right mm -hmm. yeah. those institutions were easily co-opted for fascist reasons mm -hmm. you know Hitler and whatever else, but those insti institutions existed for decades before he rose to power, right? During the during right. the era, World War II era. And that's just like one example, you know, there was also reconstruction effort in Britain and in France, you know, which was kind of torn, torn into two pieces during World War II. And all of those institutions were there for decades before. And some of them still, in fact, probably most of them still exist to this day, have been modified by the EU, but will function as they have for, at this point in time, centuries. Uh, I don't want to say that Gaza doesn't have any institutions, because that would probably be inaccurate. But like, when you're considering the fact that they are only having four to eight hours of electricity today, I don't think any institution can be durable enough to support the kind of civil society and governance needed for something like a Marshall Plan. Mm -hmm. And like so when you're saying, oh, injecting like a lot of funds and a lot of and a lot of aid and whatever else, all I hear is like yet another occupy like yet another occupation, you know. Yeah, yeah I agree. So, and I think a lot of Gazans also would say, like, we don't need aid, we need like, you know, we need freedom, we need justice, like all these things. And, you know, we don't really want to be beholden to a bunch of, you know, these are my words, but neoliberal kind of institutions that are going to put even more kind of uh, expectations that maybe won't be able to be met yeah. uh, or maybe aren't what people want. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, no, it's it's a completely true thing. And I, I do think it's fair to say that the institutions are not very functional. And I also think like, it's hard to talk about Hamas because it's such a, it's one of those words that just triggers immediate feelings for people. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes the conversation, something like, well, what about Hamas? And then it's like, the conversation is shut down. You know, they're a militant group. Um, they are very violent. Uh, they also control, like, you know, they also control civil society. They provide a lot of the administrative and social kind of, you know, support to people there. You know, not everyone who's part of it is a militant. Um, also, Gaza and Hamas are not equivalent. Like, there are many, many, many people who are not associated with Hamas. And, and I think a large amount of Gazans do not actually support or want Hamas in power. Mm -hmm. um, how comfortable they feel expressing that publicly is um, another question. I think most people would rather not publicly say they um, don't support them. There have been a lot. There have been reports of people, you know, going against Hamas or like speaking out against them and being met with violence uh, from the government. You know, repression, that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, people say, oh, they were democratically elected, but 
they were democratically elected in the early 2000s. And since then, there hasn't been another election held. So yeah, you've got Hamas and you also have Israel, you know, and it just feels like there's not really anybody who actually has the best interests of, you know, the civilians at at heart. And they basically are pawns in this larger, just completely um, unending cycle of conflict uh, that they don't really want to be a part of. And are just, yeah, I think what I've heard time and time again uh, from Palestinians this year is like, they want to live a normal life. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there are multiple solutions. If you're talking about the larger peace process, there are multiple solutions that could get you to a similar end game. Uh, I'm not sure that we're in a position to um, pick our most ideal solution right now. I think the least worst uh, solution or whatever is workable is what most people will settle for. Uh, people want to be able to just live, uh, have control over their lives, their income, um, their movement. Uh, not fear another death around the corner, not fear sporadic violence popping up, uh, not fear a soldier coming in their house in the middle of the night uh, if they live in, you know, parts of the West Bank. You know, just be uh, live equitably, uh, get equal access to uh, water and other natural resources. Uh, I think you could have multiple schemes that could, you know, arrive at the same end game, but it, it has to be rooted in equality for all people. And I think you could easily... You could have one democratic secular state and not have it be a state for all its citizens on in in practice you could also have the two-state solution that is one state being kind of this neutered state that isn't actually given full uh, agency uh, you could also have either of those things where people are given full equality uh, so it's kind of you know the will also has to be there when we go back to this question of institutions and what's what you know the the arrangements that we're making it's also just a question of like how much are people willing to sacrifice and uh, especially israelis who have the upper hand in this uh, and do have control it's sort of like it's bad and like israelis do also have trauma uh, and and do suffer um they don't like to be in the business of preparing suffering i think they do live a lot more comfortable lives uh, for the most part than the average palestinian uh, but i do think it's it's difficult uh, when you have the upper hand in this kind of thing and you don't trust each other in any kind of way for that, for people to be convinced that it's worth uh, ceding any of that power. Yeah. Um, we haven't like directly addressed this, but it's, it's come up a little bit, especially on the sort of Palestinian side, uh, specifically the Gazan side, domestic politics, like either in the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank or in Israel, I feel like affect a lot of what's going on because of not necessarily even because of tensions between people, but because of tensions within people. And I don't want to overplay this card because it's complex and, and maybe overused. I'm familiar with this and when, you know, I'm a, I, I daylight as a Russia scholar and moonlight as a, as a Middle East nerd. Uh, and like domestic conditions in Russia, you know, they're a dictatorship and whatever else. I'm like, yes, that's important. But like Russia is also a country with like legitimate interests and can act accordingly, you know? I think the same situation applies with either, you know, Hamas is like a political faction or the Palestinian uh, authority, the PA, or yeah. like the Israeli government. Any any of these institutions can act either according to their domestic constituency and the, and the domestic tension or to me- like legitimate tension between populations. Obviously, in Israel, like within Israel, one thing that is kind of concerning overall is just like the more ge- like more generally conservative like movement within Israeli politics over the last 10 to 20 years. And then aside from that, the fact that any time that 
these concessions are made. So like Benjamin Netanyahu uh, was criticized in recent days for the ceasefire that was drawn between the Gaza Strip and between Israel, uh, both from people sort of more centrist to his party, like more, more left or like people within his own party, you know, saying like, oh, you either need to be more decisive and more exact with what you want, or you need to take a harder line. But like either way, this isn't good enough. So like that's a lot of pressure I feel like that he's facing from this. And then, you know, yeah, within the Gaza Strip, you have Hamas, which is a complicated organization designated as a terrorist group by certain countries, uh, Israel, the United States, Canada, Saudi Arabia, interestingly, a number of others, but not necessarily seen as like wholly a terrorist group. And I don't think factually it is, in addition to the fact that there's other political factions within within the Gaza Strip that have an interest in Gazan politics and within Palestinian politics as a whole. And then there's the matter of the two Palestines, right? You have Gaza and you have West Bank. Like one classic thing, even if everything was going swimmingly, which obviously it isn't, but let's just say that one day it could be, how do you unite these two territories that are separated by land, you know? Yeah. So, so Yeah, that whenever anything happens in Gaza, like really like the entire, Arab world really maybe not you might not see that that might not be evident by government but like people on the ground really I think it, it's very heartbreaking um and yeah so like the Jordanian like two-thirds of Jordan is uh Palestinian descent people who were um uprooted in the Nakba the day the uh event that it translates to catastrophe when uh Israel was founded and um large amounts of Palestinians were either killed or displaced Mm -hmm. um, I think it's about 700,000 were displaced. Uh, you have Palestinian citizens in Israel. Uh, there's very frequently protests and violent protests, uh, both in like the nature of the protest and in the response from the police uh, within Israel uh, when things happen. Uh, but yeah, it's completely true that the uh, domestic politics are very troubling. Uh, and it's also worth noting, we haven't said this yet, but people don't love the Palestinian Authority either. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of this, it's sort of the go-to uh, institution for, and it's the one governing um, the West Bank, but, or the Palestinian areas of the West Bank, um, mm -hmm. but it's not popular amongst people, and they're seen as very corrupt, very corrupt, that's like the main thing, they're, they're not really there for the people, uh, mm -hmm. so we think of them as an alternative, but like, they're not, they're also not they're sort of this Oslo era thing. And I think a lot of people have moved to the point where they don't feel like Oslo is in touch with the reality on the ground mm -hmm. um, anymore. And there are people who really romanticize it and just kind of give themselves a pat on the back for having uh, believed in peace and tried to work it, but it failed. Like, and there's a reason it failed. And I think things have changed a lot and whatever comes now is not going to be based on uh, what we had in the Oslo Accords. Uh, you know, you have this, the settlements, you have, uh, the politics on each side, like you have the situation in Gaza deteriorating, like all, all these things, like they're, you know, it's going to look different. I think it's possible, but but people won't accept something that's based on the parameters of the Oslo Accords. Yeah. That was also touching on the subject of nostalgia. Like, yeah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> and then Akra being got shot. And yeah. that was what, 20, how many years ago? 20 plus years ago? 94. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah. So like 20, 25 years ago. And, and what, yeah, that's a long time. Like I know, I know. The, I don't want to say that's a long time because then I feel really old. But like that is a long time. So much has yeah. changed in the last twenty five years in the world, right? Like twenty five years ago, climate change was on no one's radar. 
right? Right. 25 years ago, the world was was different and people were were rushing in an era of the, the end of history, as, as Francis Fukuyama infamously put it. And any sort of nostalgia, I feel like for Oslo, like while I understand why it's there, you know, you read about it in history books and it seems almost like unreal that that could have happened. It's just like sort of misplaced at this point in time. Things are fundamentally different. The demographics of, of, of everything going on, you know, the people are different. They have different interests. They have different issues. Uh, it's also like I've talked, some of my Israeli friends have also pointed out, even at the height of Oslo, like the peace process was extremely controversial and not supported by everyone, even within Israel, like at that time, at the height of this, this kind of um, attitude of peace. Um, they were met with large protests. Uh, people were, you know, were being a traitor. Like, you know, there, there's a reason that, you know, someone assassinated him. Like it was not supported by everyone. Even at that height, it was controversial. Uh, and, you know, maybe like, he was one of the main agitators, like from the right wing, calling up um, Rabin as a SS officer, like, you know, kind of creating these sort of conflations of him um, and recognizing him. And uh, a lot of people even criticize him as being part of uh, what led to that moment in history uh, when he was shot. So, yeah, and that today that man sits as uh, the prime minister. Funny how history works like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Regarding the question of how people have changed, and maybe they haven't, I don't know, with your work and, and what you're doing, I assume that you're working with primarily younger people, right? Like people in their 20s and 30s? As in like um, like in our projects or in... Um... Like these scholars that you mentioned coming from different areas, like are they younger or like what kind of... My peers who are students and interns are all younger. Younger. Uh, the people who we implement projects with are every age. Yeah. Um, I work with someone who's 80 and I people who are like mid twenties. Uh, so there's a large range. I think that's good. I think the intergenerational thing is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the projects, it's like, you know, they're led by people who have PhDs and who are, you know, yeah. experts in this region, hold big fancy titles, you know, like that's the project end. But yeah, we do also work with young professionals. Um, a lot of the attitude towards that is that the people who also are not in touch, they're not at the height, of, they're not in, in the height of their careers anymore, like they're not as in touch with the current reality on the ground. Uh, and young professionals are more are kind of uniquely positioned to respond to the needs on the ground now. Uh, so you do have this sort of generational divide in where they want to put their interests in what they think is strategic, like all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Do you think that generational divide could at all like influence the peace process like i don't know so part of the reason why i ask this is in my mind and this is something that i thought and maybe you have a totally different opinion and that's like obviously totally valid i don't think in my lifetime i will ever see a peaceful resolution to this conflict just in the way that we imagine and the way that we talk about either the one state solution or the two state solution or any kind of solution any of these plans that people have put out there i don't think just based off of what i've seen in my life I will ever see that within my lifetime. Maybe I'm wrong. And one thing that gets talked about when we talk about issues just in the world is like, we always have this like hope that, oh, the younger generations will save us. And in certain circumstances, that's true, right? Like the climate the climate movement with climate change that we're seeing is being primarily led, you know, by 12 year olds in Europe, right? And and other places. So it's not to say that the youth movement can't can't be helpful, but I'm just like wondering, like do younger people think differently from prior generations there like is it even accurate is it even helpful to make these like sweeping generalizations generalizations about generational differences etc 
Um, I think actually in maybe a different way it is helpful. So in Israel, the younger generation is more right wing than the older generation, uh, which is kind of the opposite of almost everywhere you see in the world right now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong. I shouldn't generalize to that degree, but like it, at least compared to the United States, it's different. Let's, let's go there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're more right wing. Uh, so when I talk about like people we work with, it's practitioners, it's people invested in peace. We are an island. Uh, mm-hmm. We really are. Uh, most people in all the societies do not, are not where we are, like, as far as that goes. They're not really interested in, you know, they don't trust other parties. Um, I think, you know, they carry a lot of trauma, a lot of, just there, a lot of history. There's a lot of history here. I do think, like, I've heard a lot, and I agree with this, it could get a lot worse before it gets better. But I also think, like, if we have this sort of, like, tit-for-tat kind of violence that's sort of, like, yeah, with Israel in control, like, you could continue along that way and have it be very painful for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that a lot can change even in the span of a decade. And, and um, I could, I could see something uh, different within our lifetime, but it, it's just, you know, so many factors would have to change it. It's kind of hard to even imagine. Uh, I think if you had leaders who were really serious about it, uh, it could happen. Uh, mm-hmm. And also another thing that's happening uh, that is really important to just mention is uh, that everyone is, waiting to see what the American plan is. As much as I think a lot of people don't want America to be a central player here, like there is acknowledgement that we are, um, that we pull a lot of the strings. The Americans, Donald Trump's policy towards Palestinians has been to kind of squeeze them uh, into getting to the bargaining table. Uh, One of the biggest, you probably have heard this in the news, when he basically had the U.S. defund uh, from ANARWA, the relief uh, the refugee organization of the UN that is responsible for um, overseeing the Palestinian refugees mm-hmm. and providing them with benefits. And a lot of people you know a lot of Palestinians really depend on them for just essential needs. Uh, and so that was a major, major change. The US embassy being moved to Jerusalem. Uh, I think personally, I think the strategy is failing. Like I think it's having the opposite effect that what he expects from them. Uh, I don't think that, what does, expect, what does he expect? Because I don't think yeah. he expects anything. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's strategic, personally. They have this peace plan that they're going to put on the table. I think many people have a strong dislike for Donald Trump. He's wildly popular, I think, amongst some Israelis. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for some of these things he's done, like um, recognizing Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights recently. Um, yeah, the embassy move was very highly supported. Uh, things like that, but and he and Netanyahu have a very um, close relationship. But he's not wildly popular amongst anyone else. But besides that, people and the amount of influence the Americans have—it's not really about him as a personality. Like whatever plan comes out will be taken seriously and will be on the table. And it could, you know, it could shift the needle here. Like it will at least have to be um, kind of in conversation with the larger peace process. We don't know what it's going to be, but people are, everyone is waiting to see what comes out. And the, the idea was that uh, it will come out after Israeli elections. So we could see it any day now, really. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, considering yeah. Jared Kushner has basically been tasked with fixing the middle, yeah. I, uh, <sighs> that's a doozy. Um, I think we're, we're sort of nearing the, the end of the time that we should be recording, but we've covered a lot of, of stuff in this. And mm-hmm. while it got pretty bleak there, I don't think it, it got nearly as dark as it could have. You know, this yeah. is 
this is a topic, this is one of those topics, you know, I, I actually usually typically avoid having conversations about just because it is such a, A, it's such a rabbit hole and B, like, I just, I personally get so sad about it. Like, it's just so yeah. saddening to me. So I feel like no one wants to come on and talk about Gaza. Honestly, like, I knew that my friends didn't want to. It's a, no matter what you say about this topic, you will piss somebody off. Like, I'm sure that someone listening is pissed off by whatever I've said. Yeah. Uh, you just kind of like, I think to be engaged on this issue is to like have to accept that to a degree. Um, I try not to talk about my own opinions, although some of them have come in, but just try to report back on like what the general feeling is. But yeah, it's, it's not good. And Gaza is a whopper of a topic. I think most people are at a loss for what really is the first step to like what should be done. Uh, we talked about the problems with aid, the idea of anything involving security. Like it's just, yeah, it's a mess. Um, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard topic to tackle. Um, and I think also like there's more sympathy um, from the international community, especially people have sympathy for like how horrible life is in Gaza. But like, I think Hamas is something that is very often used to dehumanize civilians or to just say, oh, well, like any civilian who's killed must have been affiliated with Hamas or like whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that most of the portrayals of Gazans are very dehumanizing. I think people understand generally that, um, or at least in the international community, that settlements are pretty uh, destructive to the peace process and how that's affecting, you know, everything on the ground. And generally, like, there's a pretty um, negative response to that. And I think it's harder to have a conversation about Gaza in general, unfortunately, but we have to have it. We yeah. Have to have it. Yeah. It, it's also coming into the discourse more, I think, in America uh, with the BDS movement rising, um, Trump's policies, this life deteriorating in Gaza. Like, it, I think it is rising more into the conversation. Uh, and with uh, pro-Palestinian legislators, uh, yeah. um, Ilhan Omar, yeah, uh, the leading voices on that. Um, so yeah, I think there's hope. Yeah, I know we're we're at the end, but yeah, hopefully it will um, be something that we're that yeah we start to seriously scrutinize our own policies towards um, this conflict. Also, yeah, that's my for for what we can do. In addition to everything else in the Middle East, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Oh, other sad topics to think about for another time. Yeah. All right, thank you so uh, much, Ellen. It was such a pleasure. I hope we have we can invite you back to our podcast maybe for a different topic maybe for something a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah, um, yeah but to our listeners who are listening uh if you haven't subscribed to our podcast please do please feel free to drop us a rating if you want as well uh you can check us out on www.arbiter.org we're also on twitter and facebook and instagram and every other conceivable platform you can think of all right thanks ellen thank you.